Hello and uh, welcome to this week's TES podcast. I'm Martin George. I'm joined by Will Stewart. Hi, Will. Hello. And down the phone line, um, John Severs. Hi, John. Hello. So it's been a um, busy week for news. I think you can testify, Will, as news editor. Yeah, very busy. Poss- but we never say too busy, but um, we, yeah, we, we've had enough to do. Keep us busy. Keep yeah. us busy. Um, and one of the things this week, it's been the enormous um, BET show, the world's biggest education technology show. It takes place in London. It's going on at the uh, Excel Centre as we speak. Um, Will, um, EdTech always seems a bit of a dream for schools who are facing big budget difficulties, um, but perhaps there's something that might help this week? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what's been interesting. EdTech is quite often in its own world, but this week it's really shed light on an on one of the biggest problems schools are facing, which is, is funding. Um, and we revealed that there's going to be a try-before-you-buy scheme that allows schools to, to see if EdTech works before they before they actually take the plunge and, um, and pay for their, them. Spend sort of their hard-earned yeah. money on it. Um, and it's something that we reported back in the summer. Some head teachers were saying, look, let us trial this stuff before we commit to spending you know, thousands of pounds. I think over 100 edtech companies have now said we're going to sign up for this this new platform. It's backed by the DFE, mm. um, so a bit of good news there. Um, it's, obvi- it's obviously needed, isn't it? So, sorry, I'm I'm sure you're about to come on to the to the other story that we're doing. That we we actually thought when when we found it out, we kind of thought it was it was a good news story that it was um, edtech. It turns out is is comparatively cheaper in this country compared to America so that that sounds great it's the opposite of rip off Britain mm. but then you know when, when we put this to suppliers they were it is cheaper but the only reason it's cheaper is because schools just can't afford it anymore and this was kind of backed up by a story we did today just showing that the majority of schools we saying that they can't afford the equipment that they need whether it's computers or, or furniture so the I mean, was there a stat that's like 17 percent only 17 percent of secondary schools had the, the right standard of you know, equipment furniture tables and so on i mean what only a sixth of secondary schools. it was something like that and i think the other shocking thing was was not just how low it was but how much it's dropped off a cliff from maybe i sorry i don't have the stats hand which i should have but from maybe four or five years mm. ago when it when it was it was almost the other way around, you know, a large majority have. So you, you really can see the funding cuts starting to make a difference. Yeah. And no wonder the survey we reported how schools are going to spend that little extras that Philip Hammond um, controversially gave them last year. Um, only less than half of them are going to spend it on what Philip Hammond wanted to, which is, you know, one-off little capital things. Some are going to spend it on just paying off deficits. Yes, exactly. It's being swallowed up by that. And, and sorry to... Linking one of the other main news stories we've had this week is one of the one of the other things they'll probably needing to spend it on is any money they can lay their hands on is teachers' pay, because obviously we all know staff costs are the biggest cost for schools, and the pay award that I think teachers everywhere would have been expecting to have get to have got this year some somewhere between one point five to three point five percent. Thanks to reporting from Dave Speck, we found out this week that, that lots, at least one in ten teachers say they're not going to get that at all. So the money that, the money that was supposed to be there for that isn't apparently going to teachers, which is a big issue. Yeah, and it all just shows the scale of the financial squeeze that schools are facing right now. Yeah. yeah. Um, another big thing that came up to this week was a whole slew of stories about um, academies. Um, and it's a bit of a milestone week. The DfE revealed that 
over half of pupils in England are now in academies or free schools for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not all been good news for, for academy supporters. No. I mean, when, when the DfE put this out, it was, you know, it was a good news story and, and, the, and basically Damien Hines used it as a, as a spur, really, to, to encourage more academies to convert, which is maybe something that's dropped off the agenda slightly from mm. the days when, when the government was considering making 100% academisation compulsory. So they're not doing that, but Damien Hines was saying, you know, we're at this stage, more of you go ahead and do it. And he, he was quoting research suggesting that if you're an academy you approve at a faster rate than similar schools but on the same day the department put out research basically showing that the the record of academies is is much more varied yeah i think the phrase they used it was what there's substantial variation and so looking at the performance of sponsored secondary academies and it's kind of a big question mark for the dfe because their 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 big way of getting schools to improve over the past few years has been turn them into academies and you know, this research showed that yes, some have done very well, but also some have done have actually got worse. And it's far from being a panacea for all schools, a substantial variation in their performance. I mean, personally, for for me, it's because academy academy status has become so widespread and it takes in so much of the school system. It can't really be a panacea because it, it isn't any one thing anymore. You know, to say you might as well say. Our schools improving because there's so many different types of economies. Economies in different sort of situations, whether they're sponsored converters, when do they convert? You know, are they in an area with low funding, high funding? You're not really being able to say this is a this is a particular policy that's doing a particular thing. I mean, the whole idea of economies being autonomous—that's okay. Mats are autonomous, but individual schools—that's you know—it's completely mutated as a policy, mm. and also become so widespread. So. I almost think this, you know, there's a debate to be had about maths, but the debate about is academy status leading to improvement or not, I almost think it's a redundant one because academy status can mean so many different things. Yeah. But it, it's not, I don't think it's going to stop though. It's, it, it's it, still it, fairly entrenched, isn't it? It's not, and it's still, it, as you say, an entrenched debate. I mean, only thinking back to the Labour Party conference back in, what, September, you know, that was the, the key education policy was to talk about academies and trying to sort of roll back, in some ways, a lot of the reforms over the past few years. So it's still going to be up for debate for a, a long time. They're not going, Labour are, if memory serves me correct, they're not actually going to deconvert academies are they no, they, they have accepted that, that they're going to I think they have yeah but they're talking about rolling back a lot of the freedoms they have a bigger role for local authorities so a lot of the um, the, the substance if not the form I think they wanted to, to change yeah, yeah. Um, John um, you've been waiting very patiently on the other end of the phone are you there I am here excellent um, now you've got a, a fascinating piece in the magazine today and it's territory that is both vitally important but hugely tricky and controversial. Um, tell us about it. Well, yeah, I was fortunate enough to have some time with um, Professor Robert Plowman just before Christmas. Um, he's uh, one of the world's leading geneticists and he brought out a book called Blueprint uh, back in October that um, filled many, many column inches because of its general, um, general opinion of, in the book that Genetics is vitally important, not just uh, in creating, um, not not just in creating who we are, but also in determining the environments in which we live. 
and some very controversial uh, statements came out of that book uh, that were slightly misinterpreted, to be fair. Uh, statements like parenting doesn't matter or schools don't matter, which is which we found out in this feature is strictly not what he is saying. Mm. But what he is saying is still quite controversial, which is that differences between how you parent or how you teach, so whether you're a prog or you're a trad or whether you're in an outstanding school or a requires improvement school, um, it doesn't make that much difference to your educational outcomes at a population level. So if you are genetically um, more likely to succeed in education, you will succeed whichever school you're in and whoever your parents are. But, but you still need to go to school. But you do still need to go to school, yeah. He said, obviously, teachers and parents are really important because they are an influence. It's just that where we think there's massive differences in how we parent or how we teach, actually, they're not. we're not that different. And he, he, the quote he uses is, actually, most of the inputs, if you can call them that in a quite a technical sense, that we, we, we give as a society, as a parent or, or as a school, are good enough. So whereas... Um, this isn't actually in the feature, but in, in, the, in our discussion, he was talking about if you went back 50 years, the differences between schools would be much, much, much broader mm. than, than they are now. And the difference between a, an outstanding school and a requires improvement school actually isn't as vast as perhaps Ofsted might, might, might portray. And I, I, that does chime with my experience of being in both those types of schools. It is very difficult, actually, to tell um, when you're in a school the difference between those two gradings in Ofsted, I find. It's what um, other researchers have said. I know Stephen Gorard said, why would you why would you expect to find differences between schools? Because it's an entire system that, that's been set up to achieve the same thing. It, 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 it's standardised. Sorry, that's getting slightly off topic. So, um, But the, 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 it is a hard one for teachers though, isn't it? Because you, this kind of message, it's a similar one when you do look at social background as well. The truth seems to be the type of teaching and where you go to school doesn't make that much difference. So you almost think, well, why do you know why do I do it in a particular way? Why do I put this energy in? But at the same time, that that does. But what what do you think the the real takeaway for teachers from what he said was? His his main uh, his main sort of frustrated argument is that everyone needs basic literacy and numeracy and uh, so getting children to a point where they are they have a level of base a great a basic grasp of literacy and numeracy is good because beyond that those kids that want to push on to university and be really academic he essentially says personalized learning is the way forward get them on a, a good personalized learning platform become a facilitator and where necessary get get out of their way and for those children who are more uh, naturally inclined, I guess he would term it, to be uh, go down a vocational path, or those children who need more support, the teachers should be concentrating their efforts on, on those children and saying, okay, the high flyers are, are pushing on, they're doing it themselves, well, I'm going to focus on you and I'm going to help you achieve whatever you want to achieve, essentially, which is a very... Um, sort of slightly deterministic argument, which he's trying to avoid, but... It, it, it will chime with some teachers, I think. Uh, in my experience, some teachers do believe that pushing all kids down an extra academic route isn't isn't right for everybody, really. Mm. It was it was quite provocative as well, wasn't it, on on um, some particular things? Uh, yeah, I mean, 
there's, there's sort of an outtakes, I guess you, you could call it box in the um, in in the feature because he he talked quite broadly around education and he has relatives who are teachers. He understands teaching. He teaches. He talks a lot at um, teaching conferences and is talking at one at Bryanston in the summer that Pez are partnering with. And so he said uh, he called growth mindset uh, bullshit and believes it's a gimmick. And he said that it, this belief that you can have these quick, easy interventions that will, will change everything is, is naive. Uh, I mean, that's another take home for teachers. I think he said that if it looks too good to be true, it probably is. And good interventions are very difficult and very hard. And if it was easy, teachers would have found them already. And he also went into SEND and said, you know, we're trying to diagnose kids with SEND, and there's nothing to diagnose. It's it's a spectrum for everything, but be it dyslexia, ADHD, autism. These things aren't diagnosable. They're not medical. They are, in his view, um, a spectrum of being more having you know, having more reading difficulties or less. And so he thinks the way we approach SEND in schools is is too sort of binary, if you like. Or I'm um, you. Know, I'm okay, or I have SEND. He said it just doesn't work like that. And the way we approach teaching kids with SEND is damaging because of that sort of binary we look at it as. He, he does. He does sort of express it, express it in fairly absolute terms, doesn't he? With we say the the dyslexia and, and SEND one way, he says there's there's nothing to diagnose, which almost seems guaranteed to get up, well, more than get up people's noses to upset people, and and obviously. It, it it has done. Do you, do you think he did? Did he know what he was doing when, when he did that? Did he? Does he do it deliberately? Oh, I think almost certainly he's he's very very aware of um, how he's uh, what he says. He's very careful actually when you interview him. He he thinks deeply about every question and he articulates uh, not slowly. It's not like it's a filtered conversation, but he thinks very carefully about what he's saying. So. Everything he is quoted on, I would, I would be very sure that he, he's thought that through and he understands the impact that those words will have. But I got the distinct impression that he feels that education shirks these conversations, that it needed a, a jolt, if you like, to try and prompt a discussion. And, you know, I'm not sure whether he perhaps pushed his view slightly further than perhaps he was comfortable in order to get the discussion to row back to a level where he wanted it to be so you know oh we're not going to discuss something that outrageous but maybe we should discuss the basis of what he's saying and i think that's what he really wants it's a discussion to start and for genetics not to be this taboo topic in education um, and for it to be more like in medicine where people understand that genetics is a factor it's not the complete answer by any means and it's not deterministic but it is a consideration yeah i've I, I found that, I mean, because it is, it is quite a scary topic, but I, I thought your piece was brilliantly written, but I, I also found it quite reassuring that when when you get into that detail and, and you realise it is quite nuanced and it, it's not, you know, it's these things could happen, there's a tendency and you can intervene, it's not it's not really, it informs you, but it's not the, the scary, brave new world thing that, that you think it might it might be, or that's at least how it came across to me anyway. I think that you're absolutely right. He, he, you know, it's not this sort of uh, predetermined, prescriptive life. It, 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 he, his quote is, it tells you what is, what not what could be. And I think that's really important in the sense that even, he, I think his, um, his polygenic score, which is a, a rating essentially of a likelihood of something happening for schizof uh, schizophrenia, is, is very, very high. But he hasn't got schizophrenia and is of, of an age where he, he, he's likely not to develop schizophrenia now. 
And yeah. his point is that he has the DNA differences that make it more likely for him to have that, but it hasn't happened. And so it, it's a game of, it's not a game of chance, essentially, because there is there is some deterministic factors to it, but it's not written in the stars, if you like. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I mean, I think it's a, it's a great feature and one that if you know, teachers rush out, buy their copy of Tez, there'll be lots of um, you know, interesting discussions in the staff rooms next week. Read it. It's well worth it. Great. Well, look, thank you, everybody. Um, it's been a pleasure talking and we'll speak again next week. <laughs> <laughs>